again, if you open your Bible almost dead center in the middle, you will be super close to the Psalms, and we are in Psalm 126 this morning. Before we read that, I wanted to tell you that this week as I was studying this psalm, I was reminded of my years of running cross-country for Charlotte Christian School back in the 80s, a long time ago. Um, Our course that we we had for our school was really nice. Uh, The first mile of the course, uh, the trail ran through um, some beautiful woods, and it was shaded and cool, and uh, I, I still remember the smell of those trees. I loved running through those woods. And the last mile of our course came back into those same woods and brought us home. Um, great. But the middle mile is the part we all hated to run. We, we named this middle mile of our course the Desert Stretch. Yeah. It was a mile-long, straight, no curves, no nothing, straight stretch of black asphalt out in the middle of the sun, no shade whatsoever. It was the most brutal and boring part of our course. And on the desert stretch, you know, you've, you've long since forgotten the joy of starting the race with fresh legs and running through that cool, beautiful, wooded area. That was just a memory. And on the desert stretch, there's still no sign of that turn where you turn back into the woods and make that final, uh, beautiful, cool run home. Um, All you can see on the desert stretch in front of you is the heat rising off of that never-ending path of pavement. And the temptation on the desert stretch was to just stop running the race. Well, at least it was for me. Um, I was in the lower portion of our team's skill level. Um, I I wanted to stop running, get off the path, walk, crawl, whatever it was, uh, go back. Um, It was hard. And the desert stretch was also lonely. Well, at least for me, because I was usually one of the last to run it. And there was nobody before me, nobody behind me. It was a lonely stretch. And as I thought about that this week, I'm wondering about you. Are you on the desert stretch right now? Are you in a dry place in your relationship with God, in your walk with Jesus, in your race that he's called you to run? Are you on the desert stretch? Are you running that middle mile right now? And does it feel like you're just plodding along? Is it, is it dry and dusty? And maybe, maybe it's been a long time since you felt joy in your relationship with Jesus. And if you're honest, maybe you've lost your first love for Jesus. And maybe all that he's done for you isn't really bringing you much joy these days. You're just not feeling it much anymore. 
And maybe you've been praying David's prayer from Psalm 51. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Or maybe you haven't been praying it at all. Because you're thinking, well, I've prayed it a thousand times. and He hasn't answered it yet. And maybe you feel like you're running this race all by yourself lately. No one's running with you to help encourage you to keep up the pace. And, and frankly, you haven't been doing that for anyone else lately either. You're just running the desert stretch alone. Maybe you're just bored with the Christian life. Maybe you've left the path or you're thinking about getting out of the race altogether. I don't know. I don't know where you are this morning. Um, but if that's where you are, then welcome. I've been there a bunch of times. And everyone, there are a bunch of people in this church who have been running with Jesus for decades who have been on the desert stretch. And they know. We know. And some of us, even though we've been running with him for decades, are in the desert stretch again right now. If that's where you are, then Psalm 126 is for you. It's for me. It's for all of us. Even if you're not running in the desert stretch right now, you may be one day, and you may want to come back to Psalm 126. But one thing's for sure. You're not here by accident this morning. Jesus has something to tell you through this psalm today. God gave Psalm 126 to his people so that we would have something to pray on the desert stretch. Verse 4 says, Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams in the Negev. What? The, the, the what? The Negev? The Negev was a desert. It was a huge desert in the southernmost part of Israel, southwest of the Dead Sea. It was arid, dry wilderness. In fact, the name Negev means dry. And so in Psalm 126, God's pilgrims are praying as they plot along the desert stretch. Friends, take heart. Seasons of dryness are a normal part of the life of God's people. That's why he put this in here, so that we would know the desert stretch is normal. But this psalm is also here to show us what God's people normally do when they find themselves in the desert. They continually look back to what God has done for them in the past, and they continually look forward to what God has promised he will do for them in the future. And so, would you stand with me, and let's hear the word of the God who loves you right where you are this morning. Psalm 126, a song of ascents. Read it with me. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with shouts of joy. Then they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us. We are glad. Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams in the Negev. Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, 
shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated as I pray. Father, we do pray for streams of living water. We pray for your spirit to come and to um, flood our thirsty, uh, dry souls this morning with the word about Jesus. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So when have you ever said, pinch me, I must be dreaming? Because this is too good to be true. What uh, reversal of fortune or what plot twist has happened in your story that made you smile and laugh and cry tears of joy all at the same time? Can you think of one? Our family has a story like that. And I know I've told it to you before, but it's so significant and it's such a great illustration of what I think the psalm is talking about. I'm going to tell it to you again. Okay, so be like the child at bedtime who says, after daddy has read the story, read it again, daddy, read it again. There was a day when Christine and I thought we were dreaming. God was doing something that seemed too good to be true. When he finally revealed this turn and plot twist in our story, we laughed and we cried tears of joy at the same time. Laughed and then cried, laughed and then cried. That day was June 19, 1998. Because you see, on June 19th, 1997, was that dreaded day when Christine was burned severely in a kitchen grease fire. Over 38% of her body was burned. Um, and in that year, uh, she underwent multiple skin graft surgeries, um, hours and hours of wound care at our local hospital. Um, she had a band of scar tissue on her hand that was so severe that she couldn't open her hand, and so it took another surgery and months of occupational therapy to get her to be able to hold her hand open like this. Uh, amputation of two toes, uh, and on and on. It was horrible. It was horrible. I remember... June 19th, 1997, well, because that's the evening that I drove following the ambulance to the hospital and slammed my fist on the steering wheel saying, God, what are you doing? Why are you doing this to her? I mean, we, we, we've been going through two years of infertility. God, we want to have a family. And now this? What are you doing? But on June 19, 1998, one year to the day of the most horrible thing that had ever happened to us, um, we had a doctor's appointment because God in his grace uh, had allowed us to uh, have a positive pregnancy test. And we just happened to schedule it on June 19, 1998. So we went to the doctor for that first ultrasound. And 
the doctor put the screen up and there's these two little babies and two little heartbeats. And he looked at us and he had a big grin on his face and he goes, looky there, twins. <laughs> and I'm serious, this is the moment where we just, well, we laughed and then we cried, but not sad tears, tears of joy. And we literally went back and forth between laughing and crying. I don't know what the doctor was doing at that point. I didn't care. We just laughed and we cried and we laughed and we cried. And when I read Psalm 126, um, we were like those who dream. Our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with shouts of joy. That's the moment I have felt that. I've known that moment. Ever since then, you know, of course, if you know us, you know that we did have the twins on January 28, 1999, they were born, and then Anna was born on May 3, 2002. So uh, every June 19th, now for 24 years, we have celebrated what we call Life Day, celebrating that God spared Christine's life and he gave us three more to enjoy. And we tell the story again and again and again because it gives us hope that we can trust God's heart for, heart for us even in hard things. We could trust that he was with us in that fire and he'll be with us in the next fire and the next fire and the next fire. And that's why God gave his people Psalm 126. It's so that they would have faith in God's heart for them as he's shown it in the past so that they would have hope in his promise that his heart for them would remain the same for them in the future and so that they could walk with confidence that his heart is still for them right here, right now in their present desert stretch. Look at the psalm. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dreamed. Pinch me. Am I dreaming? Our mouth was filled with laughter, our tongue with shouts of joy. Now, this is an odd phrase, this, the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion. It, so what does it mean? It's not talking about financial fortunes. Um, you, you may have heard the phrase, a reversal of fortunes. Um, it's talking about a restoration of their deepest well-being. It's the thing that mattered most to them. Their relationship with God was restored. One commentator said that the Hebrew behind this restored the fortunes may be better translated like this, although it sounds a little weird. The Lord turned with a turning toward his people. He turned with a turning toward his people. It was such a turn that they have to say it twice. And so in verse 1, the people of God are looking back to the time when they had been exiled by God because of their rebellion against him. For 70, for 70 years, they were captives in Babylon because of their sin. God's people were banished from God's place, which was Zion or Jerusalem. Um, they were banished from that place where they enjoyed God's presence in his temple, which the Babylonians burned to the ground. 
And now, 70 years later, the Persians had conquered the people that conquered the Jews. They conquered the Babylonians. And so now they're, okay, what's next? Well, how are these people going to treat us? And God put it into the heart of Cyrus, king of Persia, to send God's people back to Zion. And he told them to rebuild God's temple. And oh, by the way, the Persian government is going to pay for the entire 23-year project. What? This is too good to be true. How could this be? A people who deserved to be exiled from God were now reconciled to God by God. That's why they were saying, pinch me, I must be dreaming. They couldn't believe this. When God turned with a turning toward his people, he had every right to turn toward them with a face full of fury and an arm of justice that would wipe them off the planet. But to their surprise and joy, he turned toward them with a face full of grace, with arms of mercy to welcome them back into his presence again. That's why laughter filled their mouths until they overflowed with shouts of joy. Unbelievable that God would do this. So now in their present desert stretch, the people of God are looking back to the past and forward to the future. Now, you might be saying at this point, someone may be saying at this point, well, Jimmy, that's, that's great. I'm glad that God has given your family a restoration story like that. And I'm glad that Israel had a story to tell about God's turning his face toward them. But I don't have a story like that. God has not done something as dramatic as those stories in my life. I've asked him to, but for whatever reason, he just hasn't done it. And I would say to you, But if you're a follower of Jesus, (laughs) you do have a story. You do have a story as dramatic as that. In fact, it's even more dramatic because it's the ultimate restoration story. It's a story that's better than the story that Christine and I can tell, or that I can tell because I almost lost her. It's better than that story because... Now listen to me, and this is going to sound really strange, but it's so true. The worst thing that could happen to me is not losing Christine and not ever knowing Abby and Micah and Anna. That's not the worst thing that could have happened to me. The worst thing that could have happened to me is that I would lose God forever. And the worst thing that could have happened to Israel is not to lose their city and their temple. The worst thing that could have happened to Israel is that they would lose their God forever. And so this story that we share as followers of Jesus is a better story than than mine, than Life Day, or than the one Israel tells about their return from captivity. Because the ultimate restoration story is that God turned toward you, not with a face full of wrath, but with a face full of grace in the face of Jesus. You were exiled from God, but God sent Jesus to reconcile you to himself again. 
God, out of his great love for you, sent Jesus to rescue you from your captivity to sin, to restore you to a relationship with him that you can never lose now. Because Jesus was exiled from God on the cross for our rebellion against him. So that if we entrust our entire selves to him, we will never know what it's like to be exiled from the presence of the holy God who loves us. We'll never know it. And now you might be thinking, I had a feeling that's where you were going. And, and I, I believe it. I believe the gospel. I believe that it's true. But if I'm honest with you, Jimmy, I, I just don't feel like it's real right now. I don't. The good news about what Jesus has done for me doesn't make me pinch myself and say, am I dreaming? It doesn't fill my mouth with laughter and shouts of joy. I'm sorry, I know it should, but it doesn't. And believe me, I know that numbness. I felt it a thousand times. I felt it this week. And as I've studied this and I've thought about this and I've thought about wrestling with whether we feel that joy of God's restoration, I have a couple of thoughts about why I don't feel the joy about what Jesus has done for me. The first, just two thoughts about that. First, look again at the beginning of Psalm 126. The intensity of their joyous response to what God had done was in direct proportion to how desperate they believed their problem was. The intensity of their joyous response to what God had done was in direct proportion to how desperate they believed their problem was. They knew that they deserved for his face to be turned away from them and that if he were to ever turn toward them again, he should turn toward them in wrath. They were without hope unless God would have mercy. And notice they said, when the Lord restored, they knew that since he was the one they rejected, no one else but God could rescue them. There was nothing they could do to fix this. Nothing they could do to restore themselves to him. He had to do it. And to their shock and surprise, he did. And the surprise was so great that they had to pinch themselves. They broke out in laughter and joy because this plot twist was unbelievable. And this story is in the Psalms to point to, to help give us a picture and a taste of the greatest restoration story there is, that God would turn his face in grace towards sinners like me through Jesus. So one reason I am often not surprised anymore by what Jesus has done for me is that I've either forgotten or simply just don't believe how desperately I needed rescue. How close I was to having God turn his face toward me in judgment, not mercy. And so this week I've thought about that. I had to think, what would it have been like if he had not done that? I mean, I came to know Jesus when I was 10 years old. At 10 years old, I mean, I, I understood I was a sinner, but I didn't have a whole lot of time to, you know, work up a record. <laughs> um, 
But since 10 years old, I have come to understand what this heart is like. And I understand more and more every year how desperately I needed to be restored to God. But I forget. Or I don't believe it and I think, eh, I'm not that bad. Here's another reason that I don't experience the joy of my salvation and perhaps this is happening to you. I don't experience the surprising happiness that comes from being restored to relationship with God because frankly, if we're honest, there are plenty of other people, places, and things that I think will restore my fortunes that I can put my trust in to give me joy. There are plenty of other things that I think will save me. But as C.S. Lewis said so well, we are far too easily pleased with those other things, with those lesser joys. He famously said, our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We're half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. He says it's like an, an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he can't imagine what is meant by the offer of a vacation at the beach. We are far too easily pleased, he says. And that's me all too often. I'm far too easily pleased with, with lesser saviors and lesser joys. It's like I fill up on chips and salsa and then it's, I'm not hungry anymore for the main course. And this is why I have to come back to worship with you every week. I have to come back and sit under the preaching of the good news about Jesus. I have to come back and drink of Jesus and feed on him at this table because I need to remember when the Lord turned with a turning toward me through Jesus. I need to remember when he restored me to the infinite joy of being in relationship with him. And this is why every Sunday morning at the end of the service, I repeat to you, Romans 8.32, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with Jesus graciously give us all things? That's the message of Psalm 126. If God didn't spare restoration with us through Jesus, but gave Jesus to us so that we could be restored to him, then what else will he not do for us? If he did the most important thing, what else will he not do for us? If God loves you enough to solve your biggest problem, which was his wrath against you for your sin, by meeting your greatest need, which is restoring you to relationship with him through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, then how much more can you know that he loves you and will love you through whatever present or future desert stretch you have to run? So let's, let's get practical here at the end and ask, what does Psalm 126 tell us that we can do when we're in the desert, when we're on that middle mile stretch? 
Psalm 126 tells us in the first half to remember and rejoice. And in the second half, it tells us to pray and plant. Look, we've talked about remembering and rejoicing in what Jesus has done for us. So but how do we do that practically? Um, you're doing it right now. You come to worship and you hear one of us preach to you about what Jesus has done for you. Show you in the table. You feed on him by faith. What you do, this is one of the means of grace that God has given us. You, so you put yourself in the places where you will remember his rescue, where you will hear again the story of what God did in Jesus to show you once and for all that his heart is for you. Come and get confidence in what God has done for you in Jesus in the past so that you will trust his heart for you in the present and the future. That's something you can do. And if, if you're not feeling joy in Jesus, confess it. He already knows. You're not going to surprise him. Just tell him where your heart is. Confess you're not feeling joy in Jesus. And if you are feeling joy in Jesus, express it. Let it come out in your singing. Let it come out in your listening. Let it come out uh, in your talking to someone. Tell someone else how much joy Jesus is giving you. And if you're afraid of talking to people, write it in a journal or something. But express the joy in Jesus that you have. So remember and rejoice in, in those ways. That's what our fellowship groups are for. So that we can gather together and together remember and rejoice in what Jesus has done and is doing in us and remind each other what he's done. The other part, the other half of the psalm encourages us to pray and plant. Let me tell you what I mean by that. In verse 4, remember verse 4? Restore our, for, our fortunes, O Lord, like streams in the Negev. In other words, turn with the turning again toward us, Lord, like streams in the desert. It, it's praying for a flash flood of God's spirit. That's what this is. It's praying and pleading for renewal. If you're dry, pray and plead with him to flood your heart with his spirit. When the rain came in the Negev, the little dry river and creek beds would just flash flood with a torrent of water. It's like uh, the, those little kind of creek things beside uh, Signal Mountain Road as you're coming up the mountain after a rain like last night and this morning, and they're just whoosh, rushing with water, waterfalls falling out. Pray that kind of that kind of renewal, and you can be confident when you pray for that because He's done it and He wants to do it again. Pray for it, plead with Him for torrential rushing Holy Spirit waters. Pray for a fresh renewal to come from God with intensity and power. Jesus promised in Luke 11 that if we would ask for the Holy Spirit, our Father who loves to give good gifts will give us the Holy Spirit. So ask Him. Pray that way. Pray that way for yourself. Pray that way for Mountain Fellowship. Pray that way for the church in America and around the world. Pray that way for our neighbors and the nations and the next generation. 
If you'd like, join us at 945 down the hall and, and pray with us. Or if you can't be there, pray at 945 every Sunday morning. Uh, if you talk to my wife, Christine, she'll put you on a text list that will remind you to do it. And, and pray. And at the end of the prayer time, they always sing that little chorus. Spirit of the living God, fall fresh on us. Pray for a flash flood. And then the other thing it says to do is plant. Look at this. What does this mean? Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. Why, why tears and weeping when you're sowing? Are, are farmers depressed in Israel? What's going on? What's going on there? No, they weren't depressed. They knew the risk of planting a crop that they could easily lose in any number of ways. It was an act of faith to plant a crop. They planted by faith, trusting that God would provide the growth, and that's what the psalmist is saying that God's people need to do in the desert stretch. Keep planting by faith, trusting that as you're praying for rain, God will, in his time, provide it. Paul said it this way in Galatians 6. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh, to his own me-first heart, will from the flesh reap corruption. And that, that's the, you heard that in Sunday school all your life probably. God is not mocked. You will reap what you sow. If you do bad stuff, you're going to reap bad stuff. Well, that's true. But I've never heard this part. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. But it works the other way too. So plant by faith. So in the spirit, so to the spirit, do things uh, that will put you where the spirit would be able to bless you. And again, this is one of those things. Um, he says, let us not grow weary of doing good for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So my question is, what acts of faith is God calling you to do in the desert stretch as you trust his promise that you will know the joy of his restoration and renewal again? He doesn't promise when it's coming, but he promised it will come. You will bring home shouts of joy and fruit from the planting. What are, what are some of the acts of faith you can do? Again, show up here. <laughs> Trusting that, well, it didn't happen last week, but trusting that God will meet you. Just keep showing up. Keep fellowshipping with God's people and plant the gospel in each other's hearts. Make sure your conversations are, are gospel conversations. Intentionally encourage one another with the truth of what God has done to rescue you and restore you. Plant by faith in your own personal time in God's word. And if we keep planting toxic waste into our minds and hearts, as Paul said, 
We're going to reap toxic waste, and our hearts and minds will waste away. James 1, James said, Therefore put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness, and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your soul. Just keep by faith coming back to this story. And you may not see fruit right away, but God promises this is how he will speak to you. This is how he will encourage you that he loves you. So for my RYM friends who are leaving tomorrow, if I let you go, um, by faith this week, plant seeds of the gospel in your heart and mind. That's what the people who are running this conference are wanting to do. They're just sowing seeds of the gospel through every song, every conversation, every uh, preaching, every teaching. They're just constantly throwing the love of Jesus out through his word to you. Let it sink in and ask God, will you please speak to me this week? He's sending you on this trip for a reason. He wants to grow joy in Jesus in you. He wants to strengthen your heart to trust him on the desert stretches that you will run in the course of your life. So this week, <coughs> excuse me, this week, trust that he has something good to give you this week himself and look for him. Look for his heart and receive it with joy. And then plant Jesus in each other, in your conversations, and in the way you serve one another in love this week. One last thing. Would you all pray? Uh, our elders, the session uh, has a kind of an all-day prayer and planning meeting coming up on July 23rd. And we're going to do this. We're going to pray for streams in the desert. Pray that God would pour out his spirit on Mountain Fellowship. And then we're going to talk about how we're going to plant by faith in the next year and years to come. What are the things that we're going to do uh, as your shepherds and as a church body together? What are the things we're going to continue to do? And maybe some new things to do that will, by faith, plant and ask God, would you please come and grow us in grace? In this year, would you pray for us as we meet and we do that? So, because of what Jesus has done for us in the past, we can trust him on the desert stretch and know that he promises he will restore us again in the future and we will know his joy. Father, um, would you take this word and would you use it? Plant it deep in us and encourage your people this morning, I ask. Uh, would you please, Father, please pour out a flash flood of your spirit on us as your people. And for any of my friends here this morning who are in the desert, would you meet them there and encourage them? Encourage them. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.